50% of women never talk about their vulva or vaginal health with anyone, not even their healthcare provider. I love egg freezing. Women are very busy now. Thinking about having a family, it can be put on hold, which I think is really, really fantastic. You can't be naked in the bed and then be like, oh, by the way, what do you got? Over 40, where you lose estrogen, the vagina gets very, very dry. We just have questions and we want answers. And I think there's a huge movement for changing the narrative. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. Today's episode is so, so valuable. I'm becoming increasingly more and more passionate about women's sexual health. It's something that I feel like I was sorely lacking for a very long time, and I think a lot of people are. I am so grateful for Dr. Sherry Ross for all of the knowledge that she is empowering women with, as well as just the confidence and feelings of empowerment she's giving along with that. Her books are so fascinating. Oh my goodness. She answers all the questions about everything going Going on down there. And we talk about a lot of it in today's episode. I think you guys are going to love it. Even if you're a man, keep listening. I'm sure you'll learn a lot about the ladies in your life. This is definitely a do not miss episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sheology. That's S-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and subscribe in iTunes and or write a brief iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, focused on a certain type of person and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner. 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Sherry Ross. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So a little backstory leading up to this conversation. I guess I should start by saying I really loved my upbringing and I'm I'm so grateful for my parents and my school and honestly the majority of what I experienced in life. But I have always thought that if I were to change one thing about my upbringing, it would have been the approach to sexual health and wellness growing up. So I grew up in a very Bible Belt Christian South community. So sex was a a topic surrounded in shame and guilt. And even the concept of going to a gynecologist, I didn't. Like, like, and I don't know if my friends did either, because there is this whole idea that I, I guess going to a gynecologist would, I guess, encourage kids to be having sex, I guess was the idea there. So <laughs> since then, where I'm at now, I am so, so passionate about sexual health and wellness and not just my upbringing, that whole concept. I think culturally, there's still a stigma that saturates society and ongoing, like I mentioned, like a shame surrounding the topic. And I just think we need enlightenment and empowerment for women to take charge of their sexual health and wellness. And so I've been wanting to do an episode on this. And a mutual friend, Dr. Caroline Leaf, connected me to Dr. Cheryl Ross, who is honestly the perfect person to have this conversation with. She's a legend in this world. So she has two amazing books. The first one is called Sheology, The Definitive Guide to Women's Intimate Health. And then she has Sheology, The Sequel. Let's continue 
continue the conversation. She's definitely a celebrity gynecologist. She has many celebrity clients. She's been all over the news, so many different platforms and TV. And we'll put more about her bio in the show notes. I read the books and she covers so much and I have so many questions. So Dr. Ross, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. My, my, I love to discuss these topics, and I, I'm so glad you asked me to be on your show. I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. And we talked before this, we are both fellow Trojans from USC, so that's very exciting. So to start things off, your personal story, I don't know how common it is that people, like, when did you want to become a gynecologist? When did you first become interested in this whole world and this whole topic? I feel like it's not that common for, you know, people to want to turn to their career. So what was your story that led up to this? Well, I mean, you know, my dad was a doctor. I used to go Sunday mornings on rounds with him. And so I was exposed to medicine from an early age. My uncle was an orthopedic surgeon and just felt like medicine in some some way to give give people hope and direction and give, you know, sort of as a career felt really empowering to me. It wasn't because of the jelly donuts in the doctor's lounge, which my dad would say was the case, but I really loved the idea of medicine. And I hadn't really chosen the, the, the specialty. I always thought it was pediatrics. But women's health was, first of all, it was really happy, kind of based since you were delivering babies and they really weren't too chronically sick. So it felt like a profession that would be really re- rewarding in a lot of ways and would be more on the happier side of medicine and not chronic illness. So that that's sort of how I, you know, chose medicine and then chose OBGYN. I'm actually super curious just in the trajectory of your career speaking to what I was just talking about with the approach to female sexual health and wellness. So from the beginning of when you started practicing until now, have you seen a lot of changes in knowledge and just how women like freedom and speaking openly about all of these issues? Because I mean, maybe I'm biased with my upbringing, but I still find that there's like secrets surrounding all of this. And I don't know why. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you know, the answer is a yes. There's been such a change in, in focus and mainly interest, because I think the last couple years with, you know, sort of Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, just every area of sort of women feeling marginalized has has come to light. You know, the politics of the day, another way that women have have been sort of thrown backwards, silenced, felt embarrassed, felt less than. And, And I think, you know, the sexual part of all this and sort of the sexual awakening has, has come on stronger than ever as well. So women have a lot of needs to be heard. They have a lot of questions because we have been made to feel shame, shameful of, of a lot of things about ourselves and our bodies and whether it's been an ongoing cultural, you know, sort of keeping us suppressed or what the issues have been. You know, we just have questions and we want answers. And I think there's just a huge movement for changing the narrative, changing, you know, what has sort of been the norm. And and that's really exciting to see that despite feeling sort of getting pushed down, you know, Roe v. Wade, I think is, is the best example of that. So 
So yeah, there's there's an interest, there's a need, there's a desire, and there's a, a will by women and men too to sort of you know be good partners. Something you mentioned in your book that blew my mind. There was a proposed bill at one point to ban the word vagina. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was, you know, back in 2012, you know, they were discussing cases on the, the floor, of, you know, the government and, and, you know, well, it doesn't, shouldn't surprise you sort of in the Midwest that, you you know, to say the word vagina, you know, on the, on the floor passing a bill was, was you know, a no-no. I, and it really speaks to what's happening in our world. You know, it, it's, I think the, for us in today's world, and I'm, of course, in California, so... I feel we're a very liberal state, but when you hear what's happening in Texas, Missouri, Ohio, Florida, I mean, it's shocking to how women are second-class citizens and everything surrounding our bodies. I mean, talking about the vagina, wow. You know, talking about pregnancy and, and women's, you know, choice and, you know, it's it's not okay by so many people. And and to me, it's just shocking. And, and there's really no, you know, sort of getting equality amongst men in positions of power is, it, it's so obvious more than ever that, you know, we, we need to fight stronger now than ever. I recently had Dr. Lori Mintz on the show and she wrote a book called Becoming Cliterate. And we had a, a lengthy discussion about even the word vagina how that's an issue because we don't even have different terminology to describe the different, like the setup down there. And we basically call everything the vagina. I've been super aware of that recently. I'm like, am I calling, am I calling it the right thing? Um, so in any case, I, I guess, again, going back to the way I opened this show, it never occurred to me to be seeing a gynecologist growing up. So what should the appropriate timeline of seeing a gynecologist actually look like? Like when should kids even start seeing a gynecologist? Well, it's a great question. And and a lot of it too now depends on the pediatrician because a lot of pediatricians are doing adolescent medicine. They feel comfortable with their, you know, the, their doctor. Some, as soon as you hit 12, 13, or you get a period, you know, they're, punting you over to the gynecologist. So 13 to 15 can be sort of an, an age that that's recommended to see a gynecologist. And, and mind you, you're not going for a pelvic exam. At least, you know, most gynecologists know you don't really need a pelvic exam. It doesn't even have to be an exam. Like I like to meet that age group and just sit across my desk and, you know, have a conversation with them so they feel comfortable. It's about establishing a relationship. I mean, that's really what it's about, you know, and then easing into, you know, coming back and showing them how to examine their breasts and showing them taking out the mirror and going over their vulva and talking about all their lady parts and using the right terms and the names. So, you know, this is all part of this vagina revolution or vulva revolution. I should, you know, it's, we as healthcare providers, as, you know, mothers to daughters, as, as godmothers, as, as best BFFs to, to our, you know, to daughters of our friends and so forth, we need to start teaching the right terminology so that this group of women, the next, you know, the next generations learn their, you know, what is down there and what they should know about all those areas. So seeing gynecologists at 13, 
you know, to 15 can just be meeting, can be going over anatomy. And, you know, yes, we'd get it closer into periods, of course. And we talk about being, you know, as far as sexual issues comes a little later, but you always want to be a good resource for this group of, of young women because sometimes their moms, you know, sometimes their moms aren't, you know, even comfortable talking about their bodies and, and what's normal, what's not. So, you know, it, it's a grassroots movement, truthfully, Melanie, of how, to me, the gynecologist is so important in, a, in the life of a, of a, you know, a newbie to the gynecologist. I think especially because I feel like I was slighted and I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, I, like this is an education I should have had. And also, because you mentioned it just now, but you talk about it a lot in the book, and that is that relationship that you form with a gynecologist. And it kind of reminds me how, like with a therapist, how maybe you don't need a therapist for any acute issue right now, but it's nice to have one in your life ongoing. And then if something does come up now, you have that relationship, you know, there. And so I feel like I need a gynecologist relationship in my life for when these things come up. It's sometimes hard to find. I mean, even you know, you're searching through your, you know, your healthcare provider book and you want it to be a network and, you know, you're not getting good referrals from your girlfriends. And, you know, I find the Yelp reviews to be really helpful. I do. I find them to be so helpful as far as, you know, picking one because, you know, a lot of women, 50% of women never talk about their vulva or vaginal health with anyone, not even their healthcare provider. So, you know, we have a kind of a broken system. And if, the average time a doctor spends with a patient is seven to 11 minutes. Like that's not very much time to really dive into any sensitive issues. So it's, it's really no wonder that you know, 90% of women think we need better education surrounding our vulva and vagina. We definitely probably should establish this. So vulva versus vagina, what do they mean? Yeah, well, you know, so it's true. I mean, the vagina used to be sort of what we would just call anything below, you know, the, the belly button. And it was confusing because, and, and it led to other issues, you know, as far as cleaning your vagina. So really everything on the outside, everything that has the lips and the hair and where the urine comes out and the clitoris and the hood, and that's the vulva. That's the external, you know, genitalia. That's, that's vulva. And that's really where all our issues come from, whether it's itching or dryness or, you know, our sexual health, right, of course, comes from the clitoris and the erectile tissue and vaginal opening. And some people don't even know where the urine, you know, what hole where the urine comes out of. So I love seeing this group of women, the young ones, and being like, hey, you know, do you want to just take a mirror and look? And 90% will say yes, you know, and they're fascinated because it's so important to know what is going on, what's normal. Because if you don't know you're normal, you won't know you're abnormal. So I, I find it very, very important, you know, to do that exercise. The vagina is really just sort of the, the area, the, the, the cavity that leads to the cervix and the uterus. And that's where the baby, you know, comes out of is, is the vagina. So it's very important to know those the separation of church and state, for sure. The vulva is, is, is important to know. And if you haven't, if all your listeners, Melanie, haven't taken that mirror and taken a look, and believe me, I pull it out to my 50 and 6-year-old women and they haven't, 
they've been like, oh, I've never looked down there. So I don't want your listeners to be one of those women that haven't taken a look. So basically, when we say vagina, that's like the sexual reproduction part, but everything else, vulva or the external. It's interesting, my personal experience with the mirror thing, because I identify it's like, I don't want to look. And I think it's just come from my upbringing. Like it's a very visceral shame type feeling. So I, I've been very fascinated by that and would love to resolve that. I mean, I think there's so much post-traumatic stress around the vulva. I mean, we're like, you know, this is just a source of an issue where we're, we're also sort of trained to you know, think about porn and social media and beauty. And a lot of women are like, you know, a lot of women don't like their vulvas. A lot of them think something's wrong. And maybe their partners have made a comment, you know. When I wrote The Perfect V, which was about looking at your vulva, one of my little, you know, 17-year-old patients said, oh, my, you know, my boyfriend told me my cooch, you know, wasn't sexy. And I needed to do something about, you know, my oversized, you know, lips. And I was like, what? And we, you know, we looked together with the mirror and everything was normal. But, you know, because a lot of us are so influenced by what we hear, what we see, you know, we all want, you know, Jenna Jameson vagina lips, like on, you know, porn or, or Heather, you know, Stormy Daniels or whomever, you know, we're, we're very much affected by what we're hearing. And, and of course, it's wrong information. And, you know, I always say, you know, the no two snowflakes are alike. Well, that's the same with your vulva, the lips of the vagina, the inner ones and the outer ones. They're meant to be different and asymmetrical, just like balls. I mean, testicles too, man. I mean, you know, some people don't think those are so pretty. So, you know, it's, it's everything that comes in twos, you know, has you know, usually has, they're never identical. There's always some asymmetry in some way and not equal in, in their appearance. So, and breasts too. Yeah. Breasts, everything, everything that's in pairs and, and breasts are a good example of that. So we all kind of wonder, we all have a lot of curiosities, but again, you know, because of cultural and religion, religious, you know, you know, issues that we've all been brought up by our parents who they have their own issues, right? Surrounding sexual wellness. I mean, it really gets passed on with a vengeance. So I find that, you know, in 2020 and, and the millennials and the Gen X, I mean, there's, there's a lot more like, hell no, we are not, you know, this is stopping, you know, the, you know, status quo is changing and, you know, we are changing this narrative and everyone's leaning into it. And, it. and it's such a great thing. I mean, the majority, and we have this little minority that's, you know, controlling other issues like Roe v. Wade. But it's, you know, again, I, I really believe the majority here will prevail. Speaking to the quote normal. So how intuitive is that? Because I know, for example, you talk in your book about one of the most common problems we can have down there is yeast versus bacterial infections. And a lot of women think automatically it's yeast, but we should check because it often might be bacterial, for example. So just stuff that we can experience down there, 
like, is it intuitive? Like, will we know if something's off or is it possible that we have no idea? Well, you know, like you think you have an itch, you're like, oh God, I have a yeast. You're either going to get monostat at CVS or you're calling your doctor. And because, you know, it's an itch or a scratch really may not even be an infection at all. You know, classic yeast, you're going to have itching. You're going to have a white, thick, curd, white discharge and maybe some redness. But the truth is that can be bacterial and it's a completely different treatment. So in a perfect world, you know, you have, you know, an itch and it's not because you've been, you know, bicycling or spinning for the last, you know, intensely for the last week or have other reasons to have discomfort. You know, if it's maybe you've been on antibiotics or maybe you have a new sexual partner, because that can bring on, you know, either a yeast or bacterial infection. If you can go see your doctor and get cultured, that's going to be your best. I am impressed with some of the -the over-the-counter test kits that you can buy now that can maybe detect yeast or bacterial presence. Those sometimes can be helpful, you know, in calling your doctor and be like, hey, I can't come in because I... I'm working or I can't get an appointment. Sometimes it's not a bad alternative because it's you, you sometimes you just don't know. I mean, we think you know, but you don't always know what that itch means. This is just a quick rabbit hole question. Is it true that cranberry juice is good for urinary tract infections? You know, it, it's yes, it can help. It can definitely help it. There are better things if you, you know, let's say you don't want to get on antibiotic. I mean, the truth is if you have a true bladder infection with the most common bacteria, E. coli growing crazy in your urine, you're going to need an antibiotic. Uh, You know, you can drink cranberry juice, take the cranberry, you know, tablets, but it's not going to treat it. So that's so important to know that. D-mannitol is a great way to prevent UTIs. I would vote for that before cranberry tablets. You can get it over the counter now. It's it's fantastic. So cranberry tablets is is not my go-to, but if anyone has burning with urination frequency, they feel like they have to pee and only a little comes out. They've been with a new partner or they're masturbating with something inside the vagina. You know, all these things can disrupt the pH balance and it can, you know, kind of push bacteria, E. coli, into the bladder, which is the most common bacteria. And you do need an antibiotic for that. So just so you know, that's important to to be aware of. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, 
Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Well, I actually got a whole new appreciation recently. You were talking about the itch scratch or scratch itch cycle because I'm like very food first and holistic and as much as I can like to use quote natural remedies. But I recently got, it wasn't on my vulva, it was on my elbows, but it was a some sort of rash. And I realized just how important it was to have a topical steroid because if I didn't stop that itching, like it was not going and scratching. <laughs> I mean, it was quite possible that I resolved whatever sparked it, but until I stopped scratching it, it was not going to, you know, heal. And I was like, okay, this is the perfect example of the a very appropriate use. That's my itchy V right there. I mean, I think, you know, we have to realize that, you know, the balance, balance in life is really important. I, I don't care what we're talking about, but balance in general. And the thing is, there's the pH balance of the that area, vulva, vagina, is super sensitive. So, you know, we, we start to look at, you know, little things, you know, that what can cause dryness. I mean, you, you use the wrong bubble bath or the wrong soap or you're taking an antibiotic. That just throws off your pH balance and it can lead to irritation, infection, dryness, burning, and not even with a you know, no back, no yeast or bacteria, it's just dryness. I am so all about treating our vulva with the same feminine hygiene routine as we do our face, because that area is equally as sensitive. I mean, you have to clean it, hydrate it, moisturize it with the same love and attention we give our face. We don't think about it that way, but I'm trying to create sort of this movement because if you do that, if you are hydrating your vulva, you you know, you're not going to have the dryness or irritation. I mean, certainly you need products that are kind of made for that area, but itching and dryness and burning, I mean, those can come up from dry skin. And that might have been what you had. Using a over-the-counter 1% hydrocortisone is fine. It's totally fine. But it, how it overlaps and affects your ability to work out, I mean, how it affects your ability to want to have sex or masturbate because of the irritation on the skin. And speaking to the cleaning, so two questions. I bet you get asked this all the time, but is they say the vagina is, quote, self-cleaning. Is that a thing? Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's totally one that I get all the time. I mean, you know, and this is part of, you know, a lot of the questions is that if you think about, you know, the vulva and vagina like a self-cleaning oven, you know, the, the, the oven is, is self-cleaning, but you still have to clean the stovetop. And, and that is how I like to refer to it because as to, we started in the beginning of this conversation we used to call down there vulva, a vagina, everything was vagina. Well, 
you know, vaginas are self-cleaning, right? They like tears in your eyes, you know, the, the it does the discharge inside the vagina, keeps it clean. So that's why we don't like to douche. Because if you do that, that can get rid of this great community of bacteria inside the, the vagina itself. But the outside, ladies, the vulva, the labia minora, the labia majora, that's the vulva, and the clitoral area, the clitoral hood, where the urine comes out, the urethra opening, that needs to be cleaned. There are products that are going to be, you know, better than others. You know, you want you want to use products that are vagina vulva friendly. So it's important. And I'm I'm all about using extra virgin, you know, coconut oil to hydrate and moisturize the outside of the, you know, of this vulvar area, labia minora and majora, where a lot of itching and irritation, you know, comes from. So it's very important to prioritize cleaning the vulva. I use just completely unscented plain Castile soap. Is that okay to use? It's probably fine. Yeah. If it's, you know, unscented, I don't know if it's drying to the skin, but you know, there are a lot of sort of gentle non-fragrant soap that you can use. Taking a, a bath with, with 20 minutes with a handful of extra virgin coconut oil is very hydrating too to the skin. And, and it, it's, it has sort of a, a it's antibacterial effect too. So, you know, non-scented soaps, Dove's a good one as, as well. And how about coconut oil as a lubricant? I remember the first time I tried it for that and I was like, oh, I was like, why, why have I not been using this? No, it's, it's the clouds part usually with, with, I know. I was like, what is happening? This is amazing. Yeah. It's really, it's a little, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I, I extra, if I had to bring one product on a desert Island, it would be extra virgin coconut oil. So many things you could use it for. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so great. Yeah. It's a great lube. You can't use it with condoms. I think that's the only downside because it can, you know, sort of affect the integrity of a condom. So you have to sort of be careful with that. But if you're in a steady relationship and you just want a good lube and, you know, everyone loves lube. It's not, you know, that's another sort of taboo that people think using a lube, you know, might mean to your partner, you're not getting as excited or they're not doing their job right. But it, it just makes sex so much better. I mean, lube feels so good on the vulva. It's just, it's a win-win. Guys like it too. Guys love it. Does wetness correlate to level of arousal at all? Or, or are there so many factors that are affecting wetness that you can't really make any judgment? Yeah, that, that's another myth, you know, because not everyone gets as wet as others. And it really doesn't. I mean, some degree of lubrication and wetness does show that you're being, you know, stimulated emotionally and physically, right? I mean, our sort of path to getting where we need to go is, is very different than guys and it can take a long time. So it's one of those things that it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, oh, you know, cause you hear how some of your girlfriends are so get so wet and it's like a lake down there, but it, it not, not for everybody. So it doesn't always equate. You mentioned in passing earlier, you were talking about swimming and, and biking and things like that. So something that has haunted me for a very long time, when I was young, my grandmother made a comment at one point about the dangers of biking because of 
how it would affect my lady parts. And I have wondered to this day, was that cultural or is that actually an issue? And you do talk about how biking and things like that might, and exercise can affect everything. So do we need to be concerned as women with our our activities, our exercise? So I wrote a chapter called The Sporty The and it was it was really how, you know, again, the vulva is very delicate and temperamental. And and it can be affected by, you know, everyday exercises, whether you're, you know, spinning or cycling or, you know, long bike rides, even even horseback riding, you know, you can have saddle injuries. Some women who bike ride a long time get numbness of the vulva. And and men too, actually. So, so it's true that that can actually happen, but it's not like it's going to permanently, you know, make you have problems having an orgasm and so on. I think if you're going on long bike rides or you're sitting and spinning and have discomfort, it's good to take a bath, you know, afterwards with extra virgin coconut oil. It's good for, you know, just ventilating anyway and moisturizing because that constant pressure on, on the vulva can cause, you know, irritation, numbness, and cysts. So it's, it's, it, it's true that at that moment, but it's not lifelong. I think your, you know, your grandma might've also contributed to some of the myths that that we're, that we're uh, hearing about and learning in our, in our later years, how, how it's affected us emotionally and sexually. I just remember she seemed very, very concerned about it. So you just spoke about the constant pressure and stuff. So this is a, a broader question that I've wondered for a long time. I'm really fascinated by the evolution of the human species and how so much of our bodies is all really about having a, a baby. Like it's about fertility and reproduction. And that's like the end goal of, of our bodies from an evolutionary perspective. So I know fertility and infertility is a very nuanced, complicated topic. Do you know if there's any relation to a woman's fertility or how late in life she can have a child or how early she enters menopause based on how much sexual activity she's been having? Like, Does the body interpret having sex a lot as keeping that system going or is it a completely separate timeline not related to you know, what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think to sexual activity, I don't think it has a play. You know, we talk about the number of ovulations, you know, a woman has, if they're on the pill, does that affect fertility? I mean, the thing is, is we're sort of born with, you know, hundreds of thousands of eggs. And, and by the time we're really able to use them, you know, there is sort of a timeline. This, the, the biological clock is just sort of true in general. I think that's more relevant than, you know, how often or frequently we're having, you know, sex. Okay. And so, and if a woman has amenorrhea and is not releasing eggs, does that push back the timeline at all? Or what happens to those eggs? Yeah. I mean, so amenorrhea is where you don't get a period and, you know, you sort of have to look at the causes of that because there can be many. And if you think about it, some women who are on the pill, have amenorrhea, right? They don't, that's like, that's a known side effect, right? Which can be normal. Or you can, you can have an IUD and you can, you know, not have a period. And that's amenorrhea. Those amenorrheas are okay, right? But the kind that you're talking about is, you know, if you don't, it's usually if you don't ovulate, you may not get a period. 
and you might hear your friends like, I don't, I haven't had a period in a year. And, and that's really not normal. You know, that, that would not be normal. So I would sort of want to, you know, separate, you know, if you're on the pill or you're on some people who have next play on or, you know, or on certain medications or Depo-Provera, they may not get a period. And that's something that we're causing as doctors. So if you're not, it could definitely affect your fertility. It would, it would be a bad sign for your fertility if you had amenorrhea that's not caused by anything. So for women on the pill who have amenorrhea from that, what is happening to those eggs? Are they just sitting there? Well, yeah, they're sitting there. I mean, if you think about it, the pill, you, it's meant to make you not ovulate, right? So that's how, that's its mechanism of action. That's how it works. So if you bleed each month, that's kind of a separate issue. But everybody on the pill, by definition, is not is not ovulating. Where that helps is for ovarian cancer. It helps if you don't ovulate an, a lot. So it's a protective thing. If you want protection against ovarian cancer, you go on the pill. It does help that, you know, as an example. But it really doesn't have a place with fertility. Do you know why that is with the cancer connection? Well, it's just it just has to do with ovulation, the use of the ovary. You know how 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 much it's working. If it's not working that much, that's a good sign. That that's what I was wondering. Well, you know, it's a good sign for that ovary, and, and it's 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 sort of the future statistic for getting ovarian cancer. Well, speaking of eggs. How do you feel about egg freezing and who should consider that? When should women consider that? Is there a timeline for when it's too early, too late? I feel like I should probably look into this. I love egg freezing. I, I just think it's the the best form of family planning that you can ever, ever have in your life. I mean, it's really taken family planning into a whole new conversation for egg freezing and, and we are seeing it you know, so often now, which is, which is great, or at least women are talking about it. And I think it's just, it's so, so, so important. And it's part of birth control. I mean, it just has to be part of the conversation, you know, in your twenties, late twenties, it it has to come up in the whole conversation of family planning. You know, it's like techno family planning, but it's, you know, the, the, the best age, is going to be like 31 to 37, 38. But if you're talking about it in your late 20s, you know, it's, it's, you're creating that roadmap, right? You're, you're, you're talking about it. You're either in a relationship or you're working or, you know, women are very busy now. So thinking about having a family, it, it can be, you know, put on hold, which I think is really, really fantastic. And how long will the eggs last? I mean, technically? The freezing of eggs has really changed a lot in the last, kind of in the last five years. It's it's elevated to even a better, you know, staying power, freezing power with these eggs and defrost and, you know, whether it's 10 to 15 years, I'm not quite sure how long, but it's somewhere in that range, maybe even longer. And it just evolves, you know, the, the infertility and freezing process evolves. And, you know, we're seeing companies like Facebook and Apple who are, you know, they're embracing and protecting a woman's choice to delay motherhood by paying for egg freezing. And I'm hoping that that's going to, you know, become more of a, of a common service that jobs offer women. I mean, I think that's just so forward thinking. 
So we're freezing eggs now without, you know, with, with, with really a lot of confidence. So it's really conversation in late twenties, definitely early thirties and, and really thinking about it. I mean, I think the biggest barrier is cost because it is about $15,000 to 10 to, you know, 12 to $15,000 to go through the entire process. Is it something that is at all covered by insurance? Well, we're, you know, we're not seeing it yet. Slowly, I mean, it's interesting, we're seeing IVF. Some some plans cover a cycle of IVF in vitro. I'm hoping we see it. You know, again, it's all about women and, and making them equal, making them feel equal in the workplace. I mean, now women are our CEOs, we're, we have seats in the boardroom, you know, women have a presence. And I think it's going to be related to advocacy that we have to fight for a lot of things. Having your company or your insurance policy, you know, pay for a cycle or two of egg freezing, you would think would happen. I mean, they pay for Viagra, right? You think that, you know, at some point our needs needs would also be met from the insurance angle. Yeah, that was something a little bit mind-blowing you talked about in the book was the amount of medication or studies done for things like Viagra and, and supporting men's sexual performance compared to women having sexual issues. It was like one thing that had issues even getting past, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of sexual inadequacy and in, 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 in sort of the bedroom when it comes to medications. If, you know, the FDA has approved over 26 medications for men to the one or two that they have approved for women. I mean, this is just an ongoing, you know, sort of problem in, of, you know, sort of this unequal playing field on every level when it comes to women's health, women's medications, you know, women's everything compared to men. And, and that, that, again, is sort of this cultural change that we all have to um, fight against. We have to let people hear our voices. We have to get, you know, get to the voting polls so that we can s- support politicians that are going to put our needs at the same level of, of importance as they do for men. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. 
I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. And also male versus female oral birth control. Because is there an oral option for men? I know there was like one in development, or I thought there was. Yeah, there is one in development. It's not out yet. I mean, it will be so interesting. I feel like I've heard of this for like years and years. <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough to get them to wear a condom, you know. So I, I really, I think it's going to be another push. But it, they're working on it. They're definitely working on it. They've been working on it for a while. Well, I will, I'll be very excited about that. So something you mentioned earlier, well, first of all, STIs versus STDs, are those the same thing or are those different? Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, it's basically the same thing. I think, you know, sexually, sexually transmitted diseases was a term that, you know, it's not really a disease, you know, so it's more of, of an infection. So I think it was, was 
you know, it was interchangeable. I think the preference was sexually transmitted infection just sounded a little better. And, and I think it encompassed it better as well. And it's confusing on how often you should get tested, you know, what safe sex is. So I was really glad to to speak to some of these these things that you you had asked about. I remember growing up, again, another thing that we were taught in health class, well, we were taught that condoms don't protect at all against STDs. And I remember thinking, I was like, so does the sperm just magically can't get through the condom, but the disease magically does get through the condom? Like it made it did not make sense to me, but I know that they don't 100% protect just looking back. Yeah, it's confusing for sure. But it's such an important part of, of the conversation is, you know, what does safe sex practices mean? I think that's important because condoms are, you know, they're used to prevent STIs, right? But they're they're really not a great birth control protector because of the high failure rate. I mean, they, I think somewhere preventing pregnancies around 85% because they break. And that's one of the things. And as far as preventing STIs, well... Yeah, they can prevent certain ones, you know, with a little more confidence, but HPV, you know, the wart virus, and herpes, which can be on the testicles or the base of the penis, they can be easily transmitted that way. So it's really important to know that. And I might add, too, you know, condoms, you know, you talk about safe sex, it's so important to know, well, safe sex is really using a condom with vaginal sex, anal sex, and oral sex. I mean, I don't know anyone that, you know, is given head with the, with the condom on. And, you know, women, if, if someone is giving you oral sex, you're really meant to use some sort of protection. So a dental dam, not a lot of women know what that is, but, you know, it's a latex covering. There's also a company called Laurel's that they have like latex underwear that you can wear when someone is giving you oral sex. So it's just important. I mean, it's, it's helpful for preventing certain STIs. Yeah, this is actually something that's haunted me a little bit because I think women, well, I'm not in a man's body, so I don't know the different experience of experiencing oral sex, for example, or just normal sex with or without a condom. But we've been told apparently it's much less pleasurable for them. So I think that's something that women might struggle with, you know, wanting to provide the pleasure, but then also wanting the protection. How do you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think I've heard this before and, and the the majority of, of couples do not practice safe sex for sure. I believe a couple things. I, I just think it's important to, you know, make sure if it's, if you have a partner as male, that they get the right size condom and the right kind. There's many different kinds. I just think it's, I think it's important. I think it's, you know, it's so important that women are protected against HPV. It's the most, you know, really most common sexually transmitted infection out there. Women, men, 80 to 90% carry it. Men, very hard to detect on their penis or, you know, testicle area women. Luckily, we get to find it on pap smears because otherwise you don't know if you carry it. But problems this, Melanie, is that HPV is associated with cervical cancer 
anal cancer and oral cancers. So it is important. So what I say to the man that says, you know, I don't have, you know, as great of orgasm, I'm like, okay, well, you know, then we're not going to have sex because my life matters. You know, you look like you enjoyed it, you know, with that ejaculation, but I don't know. I just think that there has to be a conversation around it. This was a helpful reframe for me because I've really wondered this because I, I so want to use condoms for everything that you discuss, but then I just feel really bad if it's like not as good of an experience for them. But I was asking one of my, not romantic, but one of my platonic male friends, this question, this was just his opinion, but he was saying that, yes, it's not as pleasurable with a condom, but it's more pleasurable than like just being with a woman compared to like by himself. I was like, okay, I'll take that reframe. That's a good one. I like that. No, but I mean, it's, listen, it's, you know, the conversation with a new partner about protecting each other against STIs, it's, it's so awkward and it's so uncomfortable, of course, but we all have to sort of make it more mainstream and it shows honestly, you know, respect to really be straightforward to each other. And sometimes you have to start it because I think it's very forward thinking. If you have something, you know, in the past, whether it's HPV or herpes, you know, you need to sort of talk about it. And I think you have to talk about it before you get intimate. You know, you just, you can't be naked in the bed making out and then be like, oh, by the way, what do you got? You know, I think it's where maybe it's hopefully after a couple of dates that you feel it's going in that direction, you know, and, and you are in a good place and you, you can start, you know, talking about it. You know, I think it's better to do it with clothes on. I think it's important, but I think it once we make it more, automatic and more common, it's going to be okay. Well, do you think this is something that there will ever be, you mentioned that with HPV for testing for men, it's not really an easy process. Can men even get tested for it? And do you think there'll be an evolution in that, that technology? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is, you know, my HPV, it's such an elusive little virus because you can't see it really. I mean, there, it used to be, and sometimes you get little, little small pea size, little white, they look like little cauliflower gross on the outside of the genitalia, but it's, for the most part, it's going to be living on the cervix. Sometimes men, they can get it under their, if they're uncircumcised, it can be in their foreskin. We use uh, sort of a vinegar solution called acetic acid to bring it out on the cervix. When that abnormal pap happens, we look for HPV there. But for men, it is hard. To, it just doesn't have this. It doesn't work the same way to put acetic acid on the penis. We, we just don't see it. And that's why men, you know, they, they transmit it so easily because it's just never found. They don't have a pap equivalent like we do. So it is, it's very, it's hard that way to find it. I, I don't know if in the future there will be something, a swab that can detect it down the road. You know, we're just now talking a lot about anal pap smears because we're seeing an increase, a decrease in cervical cancer because the HPV vaccine has been so awesome. You know, it prevents now 90% of HPV strains from passing along, which is so great. 
90% it's protective against. So it's working, but, you know, with oral sex, we're seeing more, you know, throat cancers and with anal sex, we're seeing more rectal cancer. So in the gay male population, they actually get screened. They have anal pap smears and that's how they're detecting it. But, you know, we just, it just hasn't happened that way. And 40% of women are having anal sex. You would think that, that the gynecologist could say, Hey, you know, are you having anal sex regularly? Cause if you do, maybe we should do an anal pap smear. That conversation is not happening either. Wow. Okay. A few follow-up questions to that. I think I always just thought that these tests were swabs, but they're visual. They're looking for things visually. Well, they, they, no, I mean, they are mainly microscopic for sure. You know, so pap smears, you're not going to see, you're, you know, you're not going to, with your visual eye, you're not going to see HPV and, you know, the anal area, you're not going to see HPV. You're going to swab it first. There are HPV lesions that are little cauliflower lesions that you can see, but those aren't always the one that are going to increase your risk of cervical or anal or oral cancers. Okay. I want to invent an at-home STI test kit that people could take at home (laughs) because like you said, it's such an awkward conversation. And for people, because I think a lot of people just don't ever ask for it. Is it a difficult process for people to go get tested and get a clear bill or not? Like the actual process, like, is it usually covered by insurance? Well, so here's the, here's the problem. So one thing is, you know, how often should you get STI tested? And, and really, you, you want to be tested once a year or in between partners, you know, or if you have, you know, any, any, you know, any symptoms or you've had unprotected sex. That's sort of the times you go. Now, one of the biggest myths that I hear drives me crazy. They're like, oh, I just met this new guy and, and we used condoms the first few times, but then he got tested and he was negative. So now I don't use now we don't use condoms. Well, here's the rub. HPV and herpes cannot be screened for. In men. Well, it, it, yeah, or well, really, yeah, certainly in men. But even with you know women, but it's really with more with men. But even even women, if you're with a female partner, and she's like, "I was STI tested," we you know doesn't mean that she cannot give her partner HPV or herpes. So that's the problem. I mean, you can never say that. Oh, because I've been tested now, I don't need you know for there any any use of of a protection, whether it's a condom or dental dam or any type of latex protection female condom too is another is another option i I just think today's world you just have to think that way and protect yourself and you know like sex is is one thing but getting an abnormal pap smear i mean that is a whole nother thing that causes a lot of distress so if 80 to 90 percent of people have it already if you already have it does it make it worse getting exposed to it again? Or once you have it, are you? Well, the, yeah. I mean, the problem is once you, you know, you don't, there's so many, what we call high risk strains, hundreds, you know, we sort of know that th- there are, you know, sort of more higher risk strains, uh, 611, 1618, or a few of the more higher risk strains. So it's, it's hard to know what strain you're getting. 
Now, when you get an abnormal pap and they're like, okay, precancer cells, you know, mild dysplasia, HPV is present, they'll say high, high risk type. So when they say high risk, you sort of know it's this family of, of you know, the 6, 11, you know, 18, 16, there's a group of high risk types versus low risk. Like you can have a normal pap. And you can have HPV, but it, it may not be of the high-risk variant, in which case it won't take over normal cells and make them abnormal. You know, and I think this is the, the fact that, you know, young girls and boys, you know, 10, 11, 12, 11, 12 13, are getting the vaccine, like, hopefully, the just this trend of lowering cancers of the cervix will will continue. I think we're more concerned with cancer of the anus and penis and, you know, throat. We're going to start to see more of these because of people not practicing safe sex. And one more question. Warts on the hands, is that related to the sexual version or is it, I I had those growing up. Are you asking for a friend? No. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm asking for myself. (laughs) I remember like when I was like in elementary school, I had warts my fingers and this girl walked up to me and told me that I needed to get those removed right away because it wasn't fair to other people. And it that scarred me for life. I was like, what? Well, they, they, they can be contagious, but not of the HPV uh, variant. We were talking a little bit about the menstrual cycle and periods. Something I'm confused about is they say now that girls get their periods earlier and earlier. But then I've heard that back in the day, evolutionarily, we were having children really early. So how has the the timeline of getting one's period changed? And is it abnormal the way it is now? So it's that's a really interesting question. And, and what we're seeing, I mean, most sort of the typical age for periods was is 11 to 12. But the range is like 8 to 14. Part of what triggers the body, you know, from sort of a hormone level to get a period, it has to do with your body weight. That's one of the triggers. So if you're really thin, you know, you may get a period closer to 14 or 15. If you're heavier, you might get it earlier, eight or nine. And what we're seeing, I mean, this is going to kind of go back to sort of this epidemic of obesity amongst kids. And certainly ethnic-wise, ethnicity, we're seeing it more in, in Black and Hispanic cultures where there might be a higher risk of obesity, childhood of obesity, and we're seeing periods coming on early, earlier. And then when it comes to experiencing our period, how do you feel about the different options available to women? So pads versus tampons versus now there's, you know, menstrual cups, diva cups. Is it really just whatever we feel like? Is TSS, toxic shock syndrome, a big concern? Yeah, you know, it's always a concern. I mean, I think that the great thing is there's so many options now for, you know, what we can use to to collect blood. You know, I think for the 11 or 12 year old using a pad is, you know, feels about right. I'm always surprised at, you know, younger women who are using tampons. I mean, the key is the conversation, you know, how do you prevent odors, infections, it's, you know, and, and toxic shock. And it's, you know, you want to change your tampon or pad every 48 hours and that a tampon should never be left in for more than eight hours. Sort of like just some basic stuff 
on on hygiene, you know, and and changing the the those the, whatever you're using. The cup is great too. It's, I mean, I have patients that love the menstrual cup. It is like this is their favorite thing because it's so easy to use. You know, well for some, you know, there, it's natural and environmentally friendly. It's certainly more cost friendly. It's it's healthier. You can leave it in for 12 hours. Well, tampon, you can only leave in for up to eight. So at nighttime, it can be super convenient. So people do love that. I mean, you have to be very vagina friendly to use it because some people feel like it's like a Cirque du Soleil move, putting it in and taking it out. I haven't used one, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And you're a little more prone to yeast and bacteria infection, but it's... I have people that love it. I mean, they just think it is the best thing. And you can actually, you know, it's not indicated to wear with any, you know, sexual activity, but you can. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was using tampons when I was really young, early on, I... Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked Farm Direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee. 
and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I accidentally put in two tampons without realizing it. I didn't even realize it. And then I realized it later. I was like, oh, well, I hope that wasn't bad. And then more recently, one of my friends now, she had, she's my age, but she had not used tampons before. And she just tried one and she thought she lost one in her vagina. She actually didn't and <laughs> never come out of the applicator. But do you see that a lot with patients either losing tampons, thinking they lost tampons? Oh my God. Yeah. I see it all the time, all the time. So we kind of, it's, yeah, we kind of call it a lost tampon. And, you know, it happens because well, for all those reasons, I mean, you know, you're out to dinner with your friends. Maybe you've had a cocktail or two. You're like, oh, did I put it in? And then you, you don't see the string. And and then, you know, you're like, you just don't remember. And then all of a sudden you get sort of this, you know, brown discharge and an odor that smells like you're, you know, at the edge of a fishing pier. And you think you have an infection. You go to the doctor. And I find them all the time. And it, yes, it can lead to toxic shock, but it's... You know, fortunately, if you ever think you've lost one, just, you know, squat down, wash your hands, get your pointer finger and your your middle finger and just feel around. I mean, you can feel if something's back there because it, it never, you, you're never, it's never a bad thing to really go up there and, you know, feel around because it can be really dangerous. And then speaking of sticking things up there. So I think this probably goes back again to my upbringing. I don't know how much it was my emotional response versus my just, well, that's actually a first question before I ask this question. Do women have different sizes of vaginas? Like is the hole smaller for some women than others, like substantially? Well, you know, I think that if you aren't having much activity, you know, and that could be with, you know, any kind of object, right? It could be a vibrator. It could be a penis. It could be fingers. It could be a cucumber for all I care. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. If not much is going in there, then the opening's going to be smaller. And, the, and that's, you know, very, very common. So, you know, I can tell when I do a pap, if someone's, you know, had two or three vaginal deliveries, or if someone really hasn't had, you know, m- much going inside the vagina itself. So, and this is, this is a reference, you know, my second book, I wrote a chapter called the collapsed V collapsed vagina. And it, it related to, you know, collapsed vagina can relate to a virgin, someone that's never had anything, but you know, someone that hasn't had regular intercourse at all, you know, or maybe it's been a year since they've had anything inside the vagina. And that could also be, you know, a collapsed opening because the tissue is very elastic. It's very stretchy. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of truth to, to that. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the reason I was asking was I actually benefited from dilators, like using those. And it's something that I've 
talked to friends about, and a lot of them didn't even know those were a thing. So have you found those helpful for some patients? Yeah. I mean, I am a I'm a big fan of dilators just for people that don't really know. I mean, for the, so for the opening and, you know, it can be that you have infrequent partners or, you know, your partner has a really large girth or length or you're a virgin or you're in perimenopause or menopause and that opening is smaller. So a dilator really is meant you know, you sort of do some homework and they increase in size at the at the entrance. They they have a sort of a gradual dilation effect and you lay down. Now I created some, I don't know if you know this, Melanie. I created dilators that you can wear. One of the downsides for dilators was you had to lay down for 20, 30 minutes twice a week or three times a week. And um, a patient said to me, you know, if I have to lay down, Dr. Sherry, I'm either sleeping or dead. So I, I contacted these dilators that I really liked that were medic, medical grade silicone. And you could at least sit at the computer, you could, you know, cook dinner, you could go for a walk and wear the dilators. There's a huge need for it, a huge need. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. That's amazing. So basically it's like the way it's shaped, it's just more comfortable. So yeah, the base, I made a base and I didn't make them as long because you didn't really, like a lot of times the entrance is where the discomfort is. So it's sort of, uh, you know, ergonomically curved and it goes up in gradual sizes. Five, I mean, I have actually up to eight sizes. So one of the things we see too, is, you know, if the average girth is somewhere around, you know, five inches of a male, you know, to have a partner that's large is terrible for some women, right? So it's, it's, there are, are dilators that help the vagina have a little more recall, you know, at the entrance. My mom is probably going to shudder if she listens to this episode. That's why, yeah, that's why I was using the dilators. That's amazing. I wish I had known about, about your brand. What's the brand called? Sheology. Yeah. So actually the average girth is 4.8 centimeters, 4.8. Okay. Awesome. So, so um, you're, the dilators, they go up to past that to accommodate past that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually 4.9 centimeters, inches. <laughs> 8. I'm like, oh my God, that, that can't be 4.8 inches. Yeah. But you know, they always say bigger is better. And I mean, that's so not true. I think men started. started. I, yeah. I was going to ask you that. I, I had a conversation again with a, a male friend actually yesterday about this topic. And I was like, men think that women like love this bigger is better. And I'm like, I have not... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure some women like it. Nobody I've talked to friend-wise has felt that way. Well, they, they did this study and they, they looked at, you know, what women liked, you know, in a penis. And, and at the end result, it had to do not with length, but with thickness. That women preferred a more fuller feeling than length. I actually got a question about that. A listener wanted to know if lengthwise can it be too long and can that happen with the vaginal wall yes it sure can i've had a few people have horrible lacerations in the back of the vagina with long penises yeah especially if you're in menopause or you know with or vaginal dryness it can it can tear the the delicate tissue of the vagina would you know because because like you would know you'd be bleeding yeah you would know like, should sex be painful? Is it sometimes a little bit painful, but it's not actually an issue? 
Well, that's a really good question, you know, because sex should really never be painful when you think about it. So I think it really depends on the cause, right? So if we're talking about persistent painful, where it's always painful, like women are, we're so used to just like, you know, biting down on or biting down and not really complaining. And there's many causes of many causes of, of painful intercourse. You know, I mean, it could just be positional, right? Positional sex with deeper penetration from behind, let's say doggy style, you know, that could be more uncomfortable for women. It could be better to sort of get to the clitoris better, but it could also cause discomfort or you can have certain skin condition or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that pain, but it shouldn't be, you know, you should not really have pain with sex. How do you feel about masturbation and vibrators and that whole topic? Should women be masturbating daily for health benefits? You know, masturbation is, I mean, everyone should be masturbating for sure. It's just so important to do at at an early age, you know, so you really know your roadmap, right? That's so important. It's very part of just general life and health and, and, and so on. I mean, you know, can you ever masturbate too much? Some people do it to go to sleep because there's so many benefits of an orgasm, right? It's very calming and it's like a stress, anxiety. It's good for well-being. I mean, it helps with cramps. People really, people love it. I think you always have to be careful that you don't over masturbate where, you know, you, you have a harder time with your partner or if it prevents you from going to work or school, you know, then that, then that might be too much, but I think it's, it, it can be really, it's self-love, you know, it's a good way of knowing your roadmap. It's important to, to know so you can tell your partner what feels good and what doesn't. You can get your extra virgin coconut oil, Melanie, use that. It's, you know, it's just really, it's, it's, it's important. And I think it's important to do at a young age. Can every woman orgasm in theory or can some women just not orgasm? Well, 10 to 20% of women don't orgasm. Can't, you know, I think, you know, the, the struggle with women that don't orgasm, you know, it, it's, it kind of goes back to so many things about, you know, educating, giving permission that that whole thing of upbringing and, you know, and and what we can do. And and maybe there's a growth in it, you know, a conversation of education, but I think it really does go to your upbringing and your partners and how you feel about sex. And, you know, because our ability to be sexual is so mental. It's so, so mental. And it all starts with that. So when you close your eyes to relax you know, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about how this feels so good? Are you thinking about, you know, what your mother's going to think of you or your grandma, you know, or was there any abuse? I mean, there's just, it's so complicated, but it's, it's important to figure it out sooner than later if there is any dysfunction, because a lot of women have sexual dysfunction. I mean, low libido is a lot, up to 60% of women do. And there's so many layers as to the why, but there are, you know, specialists out there that, that can help you. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, like, like anything, part of our well being, an intimate life is very important. 
How much do you think sexual identity and gender is connected to all of that that you just spoke about? And and also, how does it inform, going back to the very beginning of the conversation, like a gynecologist visit, how much does a person's sexual identity and the sex of their partner inform what they need to be like looking for in the visit and do you have thoughts about that whole relationship? So let me be sure I know your question, like uh, the sexual relationship we have with ourselves, how that affects, you know, going. I guess it's a two-part question. So the, the first part is the comfort and the shame aspect and the education. How much do you think that informs a person's sexual identity or gender identity? That would be the first question. I think the confirmation and reassurance that a healthcare provider can give someone that's unsure, let's say, you know, or how they judge or shouldn't judge or guide is really, really important. I mean, you know, doctor relationship is, is often the first where you're speaking honestly, hopefully, and, and you don't want to feel judgment or shame goes back to finding the right doctor finding not not just anybody. You can't just pick anyone that's on your insurance list anymore. You need to find someone that has the good reviews. It's going to be a good listener that is going to accept you as you are and, and maybe give you referrals for other people that can help you if you're questioning your your gender identity. You know, do I like my body? Do I like what I have? There's all interface with enjoying sex and enjoying intimacy. And one more question related to that. So I've actually become really passionate. On Valentine's Day, I actually experienced sexual assault from a massage therapist. So I've become like very passionate about spreading awareness about this. Is that something common at all with gynecologist visits with doctors? Well, you know, a lot's lots happened with the Me Too movement. A lot of doctors have, you know, really had to become accountable for inappropriate touching and and activities that weren't considered appropriate. I think it's important a couple things. I mean, this goes into being your best healthcare advocate. You kind of have to know what's normal, what's expected of that visit, because you don't know. And I think if you're with a male or female, I don't think it matters. I just think you should always have a nurse chaperone in the room, no matter what. No matter what, because why not? You know, I think it's important. It's for your comfort. It's for your security. And I think it's really, really important because you just, you don't know what's normal. I mean, you know, I know you've all heard the stories of some really screwed up things happening because people just didn't know. So knowing what to expect, I mean, now you kind of, I've written a lot on, you know, what you should expect during a GYN exam, but I... I think it's out there on good, reliable resources, whether it's, you know, Mayo Clinic, WebMD. There are some really good sites or reputable magazines that talk about what should you expect when you go to the gynecologist for the first time. You you are in control. You don't have to, believe me, you don't have to have an exam or get undressed during the first visit. In fact, you shouldn't, you know, it can just be, you're going to meet them to see if you, if you feel comfortable. And I think that's really, really important. And, and definitely you don't have to ever, and and shouldn't maybe the first few times until you built some trust with your healthcare provider. 
Well, I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing with with all of this. And I mean, you even, so you notice, I'll let, maybe let you tell the story, but you notice some of the issues with the stress. Is it the echocardiogram test? So can you tell listeners a little bit about your... Yeah. We, one of four women die of heart disease. And we are really the first doctors that identify women at risk. So one of my patients, Jennifer Beals, her dad had died from heart, a stroke at 63. And I sent her at 50 to go get a stress echocardiogram. And she was so excited because she's really competitive and athletic. And, you know, she, she told me she went down there, she had her sports bra and all her little compression things. And, you know, you, you get on the, you know, first you get an ultrasound and then you, you get your wires hooked up and then you move over to a stress, you know, get on a treadmill that's, you know, moving and you have to get your heart rate up to 85% its normal, normal baseline. Anyway, so they made her take her bra off and she was appalled. And she had a run on the echo stress test. She said, my boobs are flying over the place. She's like, and I have a C, C cup, you know, and she just said, I just couldn't believe it. So she called me and she's like, you know, we need to do something about this. So she and I patented a bra that women can wear during an echo stress text. It's not your regular bra because of all the wires and, and how the regular bra would affect the the tracing from the wires as you're doing this running. So We've actually, you know, we, we patented it. We're having a little bit of a hard time getting it out there through the medical space because of insurance and because of the priority of women. And, you know, you think women should be running on a bra, braless on these tests. Like, can you imagine a guy not being able to wear, you know, a jock strap? Yeah. Wow. So if any of your listeners have any connections to some of the uh, Phillips that makes the, the echo stress tests or... Any, any very rich aunt or uncle that believes in the cause of, of, of breast health and, you know, breast disease, you know, let me know. No, this is amazing. I'm going to think about this. I'm putting that out to the universe. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. So right now, the situation with it right now, is it, can people buy the bra? They can. They can buy it from Heartland to bra. It's, they can actually buy it if they're, if they're interested. Yeah. I have them here and ship them. <laughs> Okay. Well, we will put a link to that in the show notes. And um, how do you feel? I got a lot of questions from listeners about the Mona Lisa. How do you feel about that? So Mona Lisa is great. It's kind of like a dermabrasion of the inside of the vagina and the outside, like like we do our face. It's not for women really that that have good estrogen stores because you're not going to be dry. Over 40, you know, where you lose estrogen, the vagina it's very, very dry, very dry because estrogen's gone and it's a great hydrator. So the Mona Lisa laser is, is, is actually three treatments, six weeks apart. The, the cells are lasered and it, by doing so, it increases blood flow and collagen production. It helps also with some of the bladder symptoms these women get. It's very, very, it's a great method. It's you know, in part of something you should be doing along with vaginal estrogen, which I'm a big, big fan of as well for all the problems that women in perimenopause and menopause get. So I love it. It's great. I think the only downside, not covered by insurance. So it can be costly. And the vaginal estrogen, and you talk about this at length in the book, so listeners can definitely get your books to learn more, but the topical estrogen does not have the concerns that people might have about the oral. Is that correct? Right. No, zero risks of any breast cancer, ovarian cancer. It is 
every vagina over 40, I mean, over, well, over 50, let's say, over 50 should be using vaginal estrogen because it is the way you moisturize inside the vagina. Oh, okay. And with lasers, is laser hair removal okay? Is it safe? Is it, is removing all the hair? Is there, or is there a purpose for that hair? Well, you know, it's really up to the person. I mean, the long story of, uh, you know, what is pubic hair for is, is one of those things that, you know, we don't really know the purpose of pubic hair. You know, some people thought it was, you know, sort of, and we know it's, it has a cushion effect, which is sort of nice, but, you know, it, there's really, we're not really sure the, the, the purpose of it. It does sort of have little pheromones, we know doesn't really prevent dirt or other germs from getting inside, you know, the vagina. It's a great cushion, of course, for sporting activities like bicycling. But probably the pheromones are one of the things that has sort of like a, that, that there's a smell that's involved that can be kind of enticing or erotic to your partner. How you shave or wax or laser is, is really a personal choice. It's a truly personal choice. Well, maybe a question to end on since we opened with your personal story. I, I'm really curious about your, what was your experience like? You were an egg donor, right? You donated? Yeah, I did. What was that emotional experience like for you? And is it something you would recommend for people to do? Wow, Melanie, that's dug that right out of my book. I was an do- egg donor for a patient of mine who had trouble getting pregnant. And I was never asked to be one. And when I was asked, I was like, and I was just, I just had had my third son and I was kind of flattered by the thought and I went ahead and did it. And it was a great experience. I mean, it wasn't, you know, sort of like doing the first half, half of an in vitro cycle. So I took some shots for 10 days and then, you know, a couple weeks later they took out a bunch of eggs and, and then my patient used them and had twins. And, and to this day, I'm, I'm very, very close with the, the kids. And yeah, it was a great experience. It was a very, very great experience. Well, thank you so much. This has been one of the most, I think, helpful, enlightening episodes to date on this show. I, I really cannot thank you enough for everything that you're doing. I mean, it is so, so needed if that has not become apparent yet to listeners. So how can listeners best follow your work? Are you writing any more books? What links would you like to put out there? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I love the conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly trying to talk about issues that, that we really need to talk about. I'm on Instagram, Dr. Sherry R. Come follow me. It'd be great. My website's drsherry.com. And you can see my sexual wellness products that I have, you know, for women, from vibrators to dilators, anal dilators for those that like anal sex. I mean, there's just all sorts of things out there that make women's lives more enjoyable in the bedroom. I appreciate, you know, you having me on the show and, and I'll, I love the conversations myself. Well, thank you so much. And this literally is the last question I'm going to ask. And it's the question I ask at the end of every single show. And it's just because I realize more and more each day the importance of mindset. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm just grateful for my family. Very grateful that I have them around me. and, And I have sort of this very loving family around me. It means everything, everything I do in life, I'm, I'm inspired by them. All that sort of good in me comes from my family. So that's, that's what I'm grateful for. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again so, so much. This has been so amazing. I am really excited for all of your future work. Hopefully when I'm back in LA, we can maybe meet because I would love to meet you. And this has been amazing. So thank you. Well, fantastic. Thanks for having me. And and women, you got to be your best healthcare advocate. So just remember that. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Ross. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.